0: Welcome to the podcast of Christ Community Baptist Church, located in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, the heart of Appalachia. We are a reformed, confessional, and gospel centered church seeking to make disciples by declaring the gospel, displaying the gospel, and defending the gospel to the glory of God and the eternal good of our neighbors. We pray that this teaching you will soon hear is edifying, faithful to Scripture and Christ exalting. Come join us for worship this Lord's Day. For more information about CCBC, visit org. This morning we'll be continuing our journey through the book of John, John's Gospel. Um, Brother Alex last week uh, finished up the prologue versus... uh, He finished verses uh, uh, 2 through 18. Uh, So we've now found ourselves coming into verses 19 through 24. That's what we're going to be this morning. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 24. Uh, I know that's a big chunk of scripture, but I I still feel it's beneficial for us to read it together aloud. So John chapter 1, verses 19 through 24. The word reads, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of uh, of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal, I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, The Son of God. The word of the Lord. You, God. Yeah. Um, just a little, just a little preface. I, I, I just want to throw this out here. I have uh, switched up my note process a little bit, so uh, it seems a little, uh, or a little different. I apologize beforehand. Uh, but this morning, as we come into these verses, uh, verses 19 through 34, uh, into the account of John, we see the John, uh, John the Baptist, uh, witness of Jesus. Right, uh, This account is the first by the by many of the Apostle John to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Uh, Jesus being the Son of God is, after all, uh, the main theme of this book. And it's something that I discussed in our sermon on John 1.1. Uh, that John's entire purpose uh, with this book is to point people to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, it, it's different than that of the first three Gospels uh, because it's uh, focusing on the divinity of Jesus, not just his earthly ministry. But John the Baptist is one born into the tribe of Levi. And, of course, this means that he was born into the tribe of priests. And we see him as a central character in the early portions of this gospel account because he plays a major role in redemptive history. Now, he begins this ministry that we see here around the age of 29 to 30 in the Jordan Valley. And in this ministry, he boldly proclaims a message of repentance and preparation for the coming Messiah. And we could very well consider John as a bridge of sorts between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But for us to understand the keen interest in John by uh, the Pharisees, as we see them asking questions of who he is, who are you, we need to know uh, why do you have this authority, Uh, we must, must first better understand the message that John is bringing, the message that John is giving to Israel. Simply put, he was calling on Israel to repent. Why? Because as seen in Matthew 3, 2, John is proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming in judgment. We see this in Luke chapter 3, verse 17, and it reads, For his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So we see John coming and proclaiming this message that the Messiah is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. You need to prepare it yourselves. And how do they prepare themselves? Through, through repentance and this ritual uh, ceremony of baptism. Therefore, uh, as he calls them uh, to baptism and to this repentance, uh, we see that this baptism uh, is not the same as the baptism that we enjoy today as believers. Uh, It's not the same as believer's baptism. In fact, the only similarity between this and believer's baptism is that it's symbolic. Our baptism, when we were saved, was symbolic of what had taken place inwardly in our hearts, what Christ had done inwardly in our hearts. The same is true here. Uh, This baptism wasn't literally washing away the sins of those people because it couldn't, but it pointed them to a cleansing that needed to take place in their hearts to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. Now, baptism of Jewish proselytes, which is Gentiles that uh, would convert to Judaism, right? Uh, baptism of Jewish proselytes was a practice that had arisen among the Jews during this 400 years of silence. So we see uh, from the last prophet of Malachi until John the Baptist comes on the scene, God does not speak to the nation of Israel or to anyone else uh, for 400 years. He doesn't raise up the prophet for 400 years. And during this time, we see this practice arise that when Gentiles would convert to Judaism, they would be uh, they would go through this uh, ceremonial baptism, rit- uh, baptism ritual. Now, it was restric- restricted for Gentiles and was not under any circumstances uh, administered to Jews. Uh, after all, the Jews were uh, they were uh, of the seed of Abraham; they were the, uh, the tribes of Israel. They didn't need to be cleansed. The Gentiles, however. They were dirty and unclean. We see that theme, especially in the Synoptic Gospels—Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke—we see that over and over and over again uh, from the Jewish elite proclaiming these Gentiles to be dogs and dirty and unclean, while they themselves, because they have the law, uh, because they have the law, they are clean. They believe themselves to be clean because simply because they come from the seed of Abraham. So they didn't believe that they needed cleansing, but the Gentiles did. So how self-righteous and puffed up had the Jews become to think that they had somehow become clean through the works of the law? Now we know later on in Paul's epistles that he labors this point over and over again that no one's made righteous by by the deeds of the law, right? But the Pharisees of this time uh, had had taught the people that they indeed do become righteous by the works of the law. They failed to see their need for a cleansing in the same manner that the Gentiles needed cleansing. Not the washing away of dirt, but the removal of the spiritual uncleanness that dwelt in them. We also see that it was typical for the proselyte or the one converted to Judaism to baptize himself. Now, this makes sense because they were unclean and a Jew couldn't touch them, right? Uh, we, we see that also in the Synoptic Gospels that the Jews couldn't touch a Gentile. And um, so they would baptize themselves, and once they baptized themselves, they became clean. So when they see John performing this uh, baptism ritual and not only performing it himself but performing it on the Jews, they start to ask questions. They start to take an interest in what John is doing. By John calling on Jews to participate uh, in the practice reserved for Gentiles uh, and, and him himself performing this ritual, attention was brought to him. His message of repentance and baptism was attracting attention of the religious elite in Jerusalem. Now, we can only imagine how upset the Jews must have been with John, especially the Pharisees. Surely they asked themselves, who does this man think that he is? Uh, Who who is he to ask the children of Abraham to cleanse themselves uh, with a cleansing ritual reserved for the Gentiles? It was, after all, again, the Gentiles who were unclean. So we see John's message, right? He is calling on Israel... Repent and be baptized because the Messiah is coming. And we have to understand that to understand what's going on in verses 19 and 34. Why the religious elite have sent these these delegates to John to ask these questions of him. And with that, we come into verse 19. And we we see the priests and the Levites cut straight to the chase with John. They don't chit-chat. They don't say, how are you doing today? They simply look at him and say, who are you? They want to know what gives him the authority to do what he's doing. What gives him the authority to, to preach the message that he's preaching and to perform these uh, this ritual that he's performing. However, we see uh, that uh, even though he's from the tribe of Levi, he himself is not a priest. He himself is not uh, of the religious elite. And so uh, we know that, that God... Um, Because of this, they they have questions as to why he's doing this. And and certainly they don't don't view him, they they do view him as a prophet. They think maybe he's a prophet after this 400 years of silence. So what right again does this man have to operate in such a manner? They ask him simply, who are you? Now John gives them a straightforward answer. Um, He doesn't leave any room for doubt. And we see John declares who he is not. John declares who he is not. It's a funny way to answer a question, right? Who are you? Most of the time, if someone asks me, who are you, I'd say, I'm Seth. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the pastors of Christ Community Baptist Church. I'm a barber. I'm, you know, whatever. John doesn't do that. He, he, he answers it uh, with a negative response. He says, he is not the Christ. He says, I am not the Christ. So we see that he denies this, uh, this question of whether or not he's the Christ. He denies it emphatically. However, they're still curious as to who John is. The delegates of the Pharisees began to rattle off a couple more possibilities as to John's identity. They first asked if he is Elijah. They first asked if he is Elijah. After he said that he is not the Christ, it says, and they asked him, what then are you Elijah? Now, they didn't simply pick some random prophet from the Old Testament and throw it at him. Uh, they, they didn't just pop this one off the top of their head and ask him, well, maybe he's Elijah. They asked him because uh, for one of two reasons. Because one, Elijah is representative of all the prophets, much like Moses is representative of, representative of the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Now we see this portrayed clearly uh, at, at the uh, Mount Transfiguration with Jesus, right? When he goes upon the mount and he's revealing his glory to the select uh, disciples that were with him, uh, and we see who accompanies Jesus on this mountain. Who is standing on either side of Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Why? Because Moses represents the law which points to Christ, and Elijah represents the prophets which heralded the message of the coming Christ. But additionally, they asked him whether he is Elijah because they knew the implications of the return of Elijah. Malachi 4.5 states, Behold, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is the second to last verse in the Old Testament. So the Jews, uh, the Jews, uh, they probably were getting antsy when they asked this question. Are you Elijah? I promise, though, being the second to last verse in the Old Testament, the second to last thing that, Jesus, that God spoke to them through a prophet, they knew this was coming. They knew this verse. If they didn't know any other verse, they knew that, that God was going to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. However, John's answer is that, no, I'm not. I'm not Elijah. And with that, we see what seems to be a contradiction. Right? We see what seems to be a contradiction because Jesus proclaims him as Elijah. Jesus says that he is Elijah. So how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile John saying he's not Elijah and Jesus says that he is Elijah? When dealing with prophecy. Uh, When dealing with prophecies like Malachi 4, 5, it's very important for us um, to uh, interpret Scripture in a certain way. Um, It's very important to interpret Scripture in a certain way. Um, This is called a hermeneutical process or a hermeneutical method, Um, but it's very important. And when dealing with prophecies and the fulfillment of those prophecies, it's always best to let symbolic imagery guide our our, uh, reading and not hold to a wooden literal Interpreting end-time prophecy with a literalistic hermeneutic uh, or a literalistic interpreting method is what has led to many errors throughout the history of the church, Uh, many errors in the end-time views, errors in, uh, most notably in dispensationalism that that backtracks into their very theology, that forces them to make a harsh separation uh, between uh, Israel and the church and therefore forcing two peoples of God even though we know there's only one people of God. So it's important that we use symbolic imagery to uh, interpret these prophecies. And in the case that we have here of John being called Elijah, symbolism appears to be used. In Malachi 4-5, it appears that this is symbolism. John is not the literal person of Elijah. We don't believe in reincarnation, right? We're not Buddhists. We don't believe in reincarnation. That is unbiblical. So he's not the literal person. He wasn't reborn as John the Baptist. He's not the literal person of Elijah from the Old Testament, but... I would say that Elijah typologically foreshadowed the coming of John the Baptist. So there is a sense in which John is identified with Elijah. This is what the Old Testament meant when it said that that he would be sent before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now if we remember what the angel said to to John's father before he was born, what did he say? That that John would come in what? In the power and spirit of Elijah. Elijah, so it's much more likely that interpreting this for symbolism uh, would lead us to the to what John uh, or being able to reconcile what John and Jesus are saying about John himself. But with John's identification as Elijah, so we can we can say that yes, he is. He did come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He represents, or Elijah was a was a foreshadowing of John, and John represents what Elijah was. Right? Because what did I say a minute ago? That Elijah. Represents all the prophets and the message of all the prophets, right? He represents all of them. And so John, uh, in that sense, is Elijah. Because he comes heralding the message of the coming Messiah. So with John's identification with Elijah, not him literally as the Jews had mistakenly supposed, we see that John is now marked. John is now marked. He is the forerunner of Christ. John is the forerunner of Christ. The arrival of John on the scene is the ultimate indication that the day of the Lord is coming and that the Messiah will soon be revealed. The same Jews also ask John whether or not they—I'm um, sorry—whether or not he is the prophet. Right? That's the next question. So they ask if he's Elijah. He says, "No, I'm not." Then they ask, "Are you the prophet?" You'll notice in your Bible, if you have an ESV uh, or an NASV. Uh, prophets capitalized. Uh, prophet is capitalized. got a capital P. Now this is a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15 where it is predicted that God will what? He will raise up a prophet like Moses. So now again we see uh, Elijah first. They ask if he's Elijah. Then they're asking, are you the, are you the next Moses? Uh, are you the, this prophet that God has promised to raise up that's like Moses? Now we have to look at some historical context Uh, to see why they asked John this question. Why did they ask if he was the prophet? Now there was a belief among the first century Jews that the prophet was another forerunner to the Christ, alongside Elijah. So they they were expecting these two individuals coming uh, alongside one another to mark the coming of the Messiah. They expected Elijah to come back bodily himself, and they expected this prophet to be raised up, that would come alongside Elijah and herald the message of the coming of the Messiah. Now, this isn't the first time that the Jews uh, have made mistakes interpreting Old Testament prophecy. They failed to see the Suffering Servant uh, as the Messiah and the Messiah as one person. They failed to see the two comings of the Messiah. They have failed to recognize Jesus as their Savior and that He is the fulfillment of the law which they so desperately cling to. So this isn't really out of character for them. And granted, some of those failures come from a lack of further revelation. But the Jews had a had a they they had a, a way of making everything about them, right? We, we see that that the Jews had a way of making it about them. Everything pointed inwardly, right? They they viewed themselves in these places of of uh, as the Messiah. So they couldn't see beyond their own nose, right? They couldn't see beyond themselves. So they asked if he's Elijah. They asked if he's the prophet. And he says no to both. And even though they had a misunderstanding of this, We can see through further further revelation, uh, more specifically in Acts 3.22, that it's not John the Baptist that was the prophet or some random prophet that would be brought up that would be like Moses, but that Jesus is the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy. That Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the one that will be brought up as a greater Moses. He is the prophet. As we come back to the text here, we see that... These delegates from the Pharisees, they, uh, they begin to get frustrated, I'm sure. Right? They've asked him, who are you? He says, I'm not Christ. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they ask again, well, who are you then? Uh, tell us, who are you? Who are you? They begin uh, to get frustrated. They need an answer to take back to the ones who sent them. They need an explanation to give for why he is doing the things he is doing. Finally, in verse 23, we see John identify himself. Verse 23, he said, John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John identifies himself. And he quotes here Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And officially declares himself to the Jewish elite as the promised forerunner of Christ. He declares himself as the promised forerunner of Christ. However, in this text, we see John compare himself not to the person of Elijah, but to a voice. He compares himself not to a person, but to a voice, and I believe that he did this out of humility. John didn't want the attention on him, but he wanted the attention on Jesus. He didn't want the attention brought to him by him saying that, yes, I am the one that has come in the spirit of Elijah. We can imagine what would have happened at that moment. Everyone would have flocked to him and all the attention would have been taken away from Jesus. But instead, he compares himself to a voice. He compares himself to a voice. Now, in the original context of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the prophet heard a voice calling for the making of a path, a making of a highway of sorts for this coming Messiah. This path was made, again, for the Messiah, the, the one who would be the servant of God and redeem the people of Israel. So John is not only identifying himself as the forerunner of Christ, but as also the one who is calling for the making of a path for the Messiah. Now, after John's self-identification to this question, uh, or after his self-identification, the question then arises as to what authority John has to be baptizing these people. After all, how could John baptize people for the remission of sins and call them to repentance if he is not the Christ? And he's not Elijah, and he's not Moses, or the, or the prophet greater than Moses. They couldn't understand him. John, in the very next verse, however, explains what his baptism re- represents. In the very next verse, he explains, or two verses down, sorry, he explains that his baptism is not that of the baptism that the Messiah will bring. Now, the Old Testament associated the coming of the Messiah with repentance and spiritual cleansing. And John is using the imagery, again the imagery, of proselyte baptism to point to the cleansing that needed to take place within Israel. The Jews thought that good standing and cleanliness before God was their birthright. Remember, we discussed that already this morning. They thought themselves, because just the fact that they were born into the nation of Israel, because they were born of the the seed of Abraham, that they were already clean. They thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they could identify themselves with the tribe of Israel, that they were already clean. They believed also, as uh, as I said a minute ago, they turned everything inward. They believed that they were the object of the promises in the covenant. They believed that they were the seed of Abraham that would bring blessing to the world. But they failed to see that the true seed of Abraham was Jesus. That the true seed of Abraham was the Messiah that had been promised, and they did not know him. That's what John declares, that you do not know him. John continues on with a seemingly odd statement after this, right? Um, John, in verse 26, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one uh, you do not know, even he who comes after me. And then he says, The of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Uh, That's a strange thing to say. Um, I, I would never, uh, even if I thought someone was greater than me, and, and many people are, but if I thought, for instance, that Alex was greater than me, I don't think I would ever make say the phrase, I'm not worthy to bend down and untie his shoe, uh, or to take his shoe off. It's, it's a strange thing to say, but in biblical times, disciples often attended to the affairs of their rabbi. They often attended to the affairs of their rabbi. In many ways, they were like a bond slave. Um, of course, they weren't uh, uh, actually in slavery to that person. They could walk away at any time, but they, they filled the role in many ways of a bond slave. And we see this even with the disciples of Jesus, right? When they go down into Jerusalem uh, and they procure a room for them uh, in order to uh, celebrate the Passover. Um, when they go, when, when Jesus uh, performs the miracle uh, and feeds the 5,000, who is it that goes and picks up the baskets? It's the disciples. However, disciples never had to lower themselves to the place of one who removed the shoes of their rabbi. This was reserved for, uh, for people like bond slaves, people who uh, were considered in that time lower than other people. But John, showing even more humility, lowers himself even beneath the bond slave. He is saying, I'm not even unworthy to do the work of a slave. I'm not even worthy to take off the shoe of the one who is coming after me. I'm far beneath even that. It's as if he is saying again, don't look at me. Don't look to me. I'm nothing. But look to him. So we see through, these, uh, through verses 19 through 28, we see John proclaim again who he is not. Uh, and then tells them of his message and who he is and what he is doing. And then we see moving into verses 29 through 34. Verses 29 through 34. And it's the very next day, right? The very next day, um, so I'm assuming they uh, they come back. John's gathered again. Except this time, someone else is in the midst. This time, this day, at this gathering, someone else is in the crowd. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 29, John declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God. He is revealing Jesus as the servant lamb of Isaiah 53.7, which Alex just read. That's Jesus. Now we know that, that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. But again, the Jews didn't see this. They they thought that the suffering servant and the Messiah were two different people. They could have never imagined that this is one and the same because they never imagined two comings. Of the Messiah. But John is saying, here is our perfect sacrifice. Here is the one who will put an end to our need for the sacrificial system. Amen. But what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Now, I thought Jesus was the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. I thought He was the Son of God. I thought He was a mighty King, right? Who would come and deliver His people. So why here does John call Him a Lamb? Why is he a a, a meek and and lowly lamb of God? Simply put, it's because Jesus is the ultimate substitute. He's the ultimate scapegoat. He's the final sacrifice for the sin of the world. Now we see in the Old Testament that God had had the people of Israel on a sort of deferment program, right? To understand better why he is the with of God, we have to understand this, that God had them through the law, through the ceremonial law, on a deferment program. Their sin debt would accumulate over the year, and at the end of the year, on the, or not the end of the year, but on the Day of Atonement, uh, the priests, the high priests, would have to come and make sacrifice to atone for the sins that they had accumulated over the course of that year. However, this had to be repeated year after year. After year, after year. There was never a year that Israel didn't have to have a day of atonement. They always had to have atonement made for their sin because there was never any offering good enough to pay the debt in full. And we would see that God would defer their payment for their sin until the next year if they did exactly what he commanded them to do. And we see that uh, in Leviticus. Um, I believe starting in chapter 16. Um, And majorly in chapter 19 We see this day of atonement Uh, We see how what God God had uh, Commanded them to do on this day If you go back in your own time and read that uh, You will see that it was very meticulous Uh, It was down to the very uh, Minute detail that everything had to be right As a matter of fact if everything was right They would wrap a cord or a rope Around the waist of the high priest So that when he walked in the holies of holies If he didn't have something turned the right way Or he hadn't washed himself good enough When he fell over and died, they would be able to pull him out of the Holy of Holies. It was very serious. God took it very seriously. And if they did this, he would defer their sin debt. And we see this continue until the crucifixion of Jesus. The final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He was the full payment. Now, we, we, can, uh, we can see this as an example with uh, modern-day terms would be like something with uh, a home loan or a car loan. It might be better. It's a little bit shorter. Um, so a car loan. Uh, when you go out and you take out a loan on a car and say you finance it for 60 months, um, and during the course of that uh, term of that loan, uh, you come upon a month and you can't pay your bill, you go to your loan officer and you give him your whole spiel, give him the whole story about why you can't pay it, and he decides to have mercy on you and says, okay, fine. I'll defer your payment. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to make that payment. When it's deferred, it means it's taken to the end of the term. That now you have another month tacked on at the end of your loan. That's what was happening Israel until the full payment came. But as the service, the perfect sacrifice, as John declares him, the Lamb of God, as the perfect sacrifice, Jesus removes the sin of the world. He takes sin upon himself and nails it to the cross while he endures the wrath and the punishment for that sin. Now, I want us to have a proper understanding of what John is, John the Baptist, is communicating here when he says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. This world, uh, this word world in the Greek here, is the word cosmos. And this word cosmos has. Uh, multiple definitions. Um, it has, I believe, seven or eight different means that what it could mean uh, in certain contexts. But out of all of those means, it never means every single person to ever live. Because that's not what John's trying to communicate. John's not saying Jesus came and took away the sin of every single person who has ever lived. Instead, it points to humanity in general, right? That, John, or that Jesus came and took away the sin Singular, right? The sin of humanity. He doesn't say he takes away the sins of the world or the sins of every single person, but the sin of humanity. So John is not saying again that Jesus takes away the sins of every single individual. And before you pick up the pitchforks and try to uh, take me outside and crucify me, allow me to uh, communicate a little bit further what John's trying to say. First, by saying what he wasn't communicating, or the implications of what most people believe that he's communicating here had John been communicating that we would have uh, we would have a very serious and hard reality to deal with, with, right? If he had been communicating that Jesus died for every single sin of every single individual that had ever drawn a breath, we'd have a problem. Because if Jesus took away the sins of every single individual who had ever lived, then no one should be in hell. No one should be in hell. And you say, well, it's You don't get the atonement unless you believe. But I would say, friends, this morning that even if they never came to believe in Jesus, even if they never beheld Him, that sin still would have been removed by Christ because it's a sin, right? Unbelief is a sin. And if He died for every single sin, and He died for every single sin of every single individual, then we would have a major problem if anyone ever ended up in hell. So then, since we know that there are indeed individuals in hell, we must have to affirm that if they are if there are individuals in hell and that he did die for every single sin of every single individual, then the the lawyers in the room are like this, they're there on double jeopardy. They're there on double jeopardy, because it's already been atoned for, so they shouldn't be there. Right? It's already been atoned for, so they shouldn't be there. Yet they would be. And that leaves us with a major problem. As a matter of fact, if that's the case, we need to just stand up and walk out right now. Because we have now found injustice. With God, If anyone is in hell on double jeopardy, then there is injustice with God. However, we know that there is no injustice with God. And that is not what John the Baptist is trying to communicate to us this morning. We know that there is no injustice with God because no one is on, in hell on double jeopardy. Why? Because Jesus didn't remove the sins of every single individual who had ever lived. But he removed the sin of the world. He came and made a propitiation for the sin of humanity. And upon belief, one receives the benefits of that atonement. Right? Upon belief in Christ, one receives the benefits of the atonement that he made. So that again, this Greek word, cosmos, or world translated here, is not talking of every single person, but of the entire world of humanity in general. Right? He's a sacrifice on the behalf of mankind. Now this doesn't in any way limit the power or the effectiveness of the crucifixion, but it does limit the scope. And we all limit the scope of the crucifixion or of, of the atonement on the cross in one way or another, whether we realize it or not. Certainly we don't hold the universalism, right? Universalism says that every single person is going to heaven no matter what. Right? Which would be true if Jesus died for every single sin of every single person who had ever lived. Whether they come to faith or not, they're going to heaven. We know that's not true. Jesus himself says that there's people in hell. So that can't be true. But we do limit the scope. Because we don't hold to universalism. We say that only those who have faith in Christ, who have beheld the Son of God, who have beheld the Lamb of God, can go to heaven. Are the only ones. Now, a lot of people like to invoke John 3.16 here and say that whosoever will, and that's true. Whosoever will. That doesn't mean exactly what everyone tries to make it out to be. That's a circular argument. For God loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What happens to those who believe in him? They gain eternal life. And what happens to those who have eternal life? They have or how do they get eternal life? They have believed in the Son. There's a the negative side of that argument as well. There's a negative side to that circular argument that those who have not believed in the Son do not receive eternal life. And those who did not receive eternal life did not believe in the Son. So that we see that the power and the effectiveness is not limited. The power and the effectiveness of the atonement is not limited, but the scope is. The scope of the atonement is. So this also doesn't imply that salvation isn't offered freely to anyone who desires it. It is. It's offered freely to anyone who desires. It's offered to the world to humanity in general. We have a problem. We have a major problem. We are dead in our sins. We are unable to accept or to respond to the gospel apart from a work done in our hearts by God, by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 3, Paul's discourse on on human depravity tells us just how awful we really are. And sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's a fact and the truth of the matter. So it is offered freely to all individuals, but the, the, the fact is, is that no one will accept the gospel apart from a supernatural working of God in the heart of that person. And we all believe that, right? That God has to draw the individual. We all say that, and I hope that we all truly believe that. That God is the one who, we don't, someone just wake up on Monday morning in i and we'll get saved today of their own volition. But that God had to draw that individual. So I hope that we understand that when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that that we don't come to the conclusion of universalism. We don't come to a conclusion that he died for every single sin of every single person who had ever drawn a breath. But instead that he died for the sin, the sin debt of humanity. And yes, it is offered freely to all humanity, but only those who God does the work in their heart can come to faith in Christ. But then moving into verse 30, we see John bestow divinity upon Jesus. There's another divinity claim, um, not made by Jesus himself in this instance, as we'll see multiple times throughout the rest of this book, but by John the Baptist. He says that Jesus ranks before him. Why? Because he, Jesus, was before him. Now, we have to remember something. Um, This would have looked very odd when John said this. Uh, especially when they figured out he was talking about well, the, when they realized that it was Jesus that he was pointing at and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. John was born six months before Jesus. Amen. John was born six months before Jesus. And so how can, how can he claim that Jesus was, was before him? What's the same reason that Jesus can claim that he was before Abraham in John 8, 58? Because as we uh, talked on on John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus pre-exists the world. Jesus pre-exists creation. Why? Because Jesus is God. Amen. That's how John can proclaim boldly that He is before me and He ranks above me. But John, John did, not just, uh, did not first know uh, that Jesus uh, was the Messiah, that He was the Lamb of God. Uh, before it was revealed to him, as we'll get to in a minute, uh, but before it was revealed to him, John didn't know. John didn't have the inside track of who the Messiah was. He was simply given a message Saying, "Go, baptize with water, call Israel to repentance, and make way, uh, make straight way for the coming Messiah." It's all he knew. Didn't know who it was. Uh, he didn't know if it was Jesus or Peter or anybody else. John, anybody else? He didn't know, but he did know that the, it, that the Messiah, through his message, would be revealed to Israel. Now he didn't come baptizing. Uh, And calling Israel to repentance because, again, because he knew that his cousin Jesus, uh, there's a little sidetrack if you didn't know that, uh, their mothers were cousins, uh, that his cousin Jesus uh, was the Messiah and Savior. But again, he came out of obedience, not knowing who it was, but out of obedience to the Father, proclaiming this message. And how was Jesus revealed as the Messiah? Well, John tells us by the Holy Spirit coming down out of heaven like a dove. It is upon seeing the Spirit rest upon him that John bears witness that Jesus is the Messiah. And then again, John reiterates that he did not know who the Messiah was, but that God said that he would reveal it to him in this very manner. Amen. Now, the Old Testament anticipated that the time of redemption and it was a time when God would pour out his Spirit on his people. Ezekiel 36, 24-28. It reads like this. This is the New Covenant. You can also find it in Jeremiah 31. But Ezekiel 36, 24-28. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will, A new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Two things. First of all, I don't know how the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Sanhedrin didn't realize that they were unclean. I don't realize how they didn't realize that even through the wall, they were unclean. Because the new covenant, the promise tells us, I will take away your uncleanness. They should have known. The second we see that through this, through the coming of Jesus, this is now being brought into, or brought to fruition. We see Paul refer to Jesus as the second Adam, who became a life-giving spirit. Upon Jesus returning to heaven... Um, This aspect of the New Covenant is completely fulfilled. This aspect of this giving of the Spirit. Because Jesus sends the Spirit to dwell in His people. Jesus sends the Spirit to dwell in His people. Now He sends the Helper who fulfills all things God said that He would do in His people. Right. That's what he tells his disciples. I have to go away so that I can what? I can send the helper. I can send the comforter. I can send the one uh, who, who comes after me. He baptizes, as we see. Jesus baptizes with water. Not with water. So with the Holy Spirit. This, again, as we talked about at the beginning, this is what John's uh, uh, ritual of baptism that he was taking uh, the Jews through, this is what he was pointing them to with that baptism. They were pointed to that cleansing um, from prior to the cross. They were looking forward to this cleansing. Now, we in Believer's Baptism, we look back. When we are baptized um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, it is looking back at what God did at our moment of conversion in our hearts. Right? It's looking at the cleansing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that took place. So, physical baptism, as John uh, was doing here, It brings about nothing. It brings about no change in the spiritual life of the individual. The the however the Holy the Holy Spirit, the baptism that comes with the Holy Spirit, it does affect change in the life of the individual. The true cleansing that John was pointing to doesn't come again from proselyte baptism, and he knew that. And it doesn't come from a New Testament pastor uh, like Alex or myself. Uh, baptizing someone in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit absolutely does not. Amen. We are not saved through baptism. Amen. True Amen. conversion, true repentance, true life comes again from what? The baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes from faith. And that that is a baptism that John couldn't perform. John was not able to perform the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Moses wasn't able to perform this. Elijah wasn't able to perform this. Peter couldn't perform it. John, John the apostle, couldn't perform it. James couldn't perform it. Only one could perform this baptism because it's a baptism that takes place inside. It's a baptism that takes place of the cleansing of the heart, the cutting away of the, the the stony heart, and replacing it with a heart of flesh. No one other than Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, can perform that baptism. This is what John was preparing Israel for. This was the path that he was laying out for the coming Messiah. This baptism is what he was pointing them to. That Jesus was coming. That Jesus was coming. And we see that when Jesus comes and he pays the sin on the cross, and then he baptizes those in the Holy Spirit, uh, that, those that come to him in faith, that they were brought into the newness of life. They are are made new in the sight of God. They are made clean in the sight of God in a way that John's baptism couldn't do. But lastly, we see John bear witness once more that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God. The last verse, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And this sums up the entire point of this gospel account, doesn't it's to point us towards the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that he has come to take away the sin of mankind and to baptize with the Holy Spirit unto the newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the time that you've allowed us of the Word. We pray that it went forth. We know that it went forth and it won't return void, but we pray that it edified your people. We pray that it lifted them up. Father, we want to thank you for, again, the sacrifice of your Son, for sending the Lamb, uh, your Lamb, to take away our need for sacrifices. To take away the need uh, of, of some ritual cleansing that just deferred our sin. But That you paid our sin debt in full. That you made a way for us to become clean in your sight. To be holy in your sight, And to be welcomed into the family. Father, we ask all these things and give you all this praise in the name of your son Jesus.